It's kind of funny saying that when I think I've said good evening to everybody already, but it's good to, good to be in the practice. Uh, so summer is clearly behind us now. And I don't know if, if many of you uh, remember this, but back in, in the 4th of July weekend, Sarah and I got invited to go to uh, my uncle. I have an uncle down in the States, and he's a sheriff on the East Coast. And he invited us to go down to visit for the 4th of July weekend. And so uh, we were thought about it, and we're like, okay, well, maybe we'll go. But he said, just so you know, before you come, there's been a shark attack. No, seriously, like there's been a shark attack. See, so, you know, like maybe you want to come, maybe you don't. And we're like, oh, no, we'll come. It, it'll be good. Uh, but then before we got there, there was a second shark attack. And so every, the people started to get upset. They started to freak out a little bit. And they said, and my uncle said, okay, we've got to close the beach until we figure out what's going on. But this place is like Harrison, right? It's a, it's a tourist town. And they say, well, we can't close the beach, right? The, the mayor, the, the city council people, the business owners are like, well, we can't close the beach because it, that's where we get our money. We need to figure this out. So my uncle said, okay, fine, we'll just up the security and, and whatever. So we're down there. And lo and behold, there's another shark attack. There's pandemonium. People start, they're freaking out. They don't know what they're going to do. And so they close the beach. And they say, we've got to do something about this. So they say, okay, well, let's, let's have a fishing derby. And then maybe we'll be able to catch the shark that way. And so they set up this fishing derby. And they're all out trying to catch this shark. And finally, this one group of guys, they catch this really big one. And everyone's thinking, woo, we caught the shark. Yes, we can open up the beaches again. And so they do. But then there's this marine biologist there. And he's looking at the shark. And he's got out his, his measure. And he's measuring the mouth of the shark. And he's measured the, the wounds on the people and all this stuff. And he says, no, guys, you've got the wrong shark. The one you're looking for is actually really, it's much, much bigger than this. No one's listening. And then there's another shark attack. And so this is, everybody's freaking out now. They close down the beach. They don't know what to do. My uncle says, okay, we got we to gotta get after this. So he grabs the marine biologist. He gets this surly old boat captain in his boat. And they go out and they're going to hunt down this shark. But little did they know that the shark was hunting them. So much so that the, 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 in the boat, the shark starts ramming the boat and it makes this big hole in it so the boat actually starts to sink. The shark then gets the boat captain. It's unbelievable. Everybody's thinking that it, all hope is lost until finally my uncle gets this CO2 canister into the mouth of the great beast, pulls out his rifle and <laughs> blows the shark. What? Why you guys... Okay, that's Jaws. That's, that's, uh, that didn't actually happen to me or my uncle. I don't have an uncle that's a sheriff in the States. Okay, okay. So how about this story? How about this story? So you guys, you guys know my name is, is Chris, Chris Battle, and, and I came to faith in Christ at, at 29. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, I was broken. I was in addiction for the, the latter 16 years of my time when I didn't know Jesus. But then when I did meet Jesus, my life radically transformed. Radically transformed to the point where I'm, I'm a very, very different person than I once was. And since then, I've been doing my best to live my life for Jesus. Now, many people would say that what I'm doing there is the same thing. In both of those stories, those are in fact fictitious stories, and I'm inserting myself into 
these stories. So in one story, I'm inserting myself into the Jaws fairy tale, the Jaws story, and then other people would say that I'm inserting myself into the Jesus fairy tale. That in both places, they don't have any sort of impact on reality. Or perhaps uh, something like this has happened to you or someone you know. You've grown up in a a Christian home. You've gone to camp and and you've put your faith in Jesus. And then maybe you've gone on a uh, a mission trip to Mexico and, and you've, you've attended youth group and you have questions, but everyone around you seems to act like they have it all together, that they believe everything really, really well. And, and maybe you even believe that you believe, you know? But then one day you meet some new friends or, or you, you watch some videos on YouTube or, or you go off to college or, or whatever it may be. And, and you start to think, these people start to convince you that maybe what you believe is a little like believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or leprechauns. That you've been essentially sold a lie and, and now you want your money back. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Or maybe, maybe you've never had faith. Your, your parents believed, your parents believed and you thought it was hokey, or maybe they didn't believe and, and, and you followed their lead. See, that was how it was for me. I uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home. So when uh, I say this, please hear me that if, if, if you or if somebody you know believes that Christianity is a fairy tale, is just a fairy tale, I understand that because I believed that for most of my life. And this is why I'm really, really excited to get to talk about this topic with you tonight. Because for the first 29 years of my life, I I spent them mad at a God that I claimed didn't exist. That it was just a big fairy tale and people were were kidding themselves. Now look at me. So this evening, I I simply want to address this question through the text or through a text of scripture. And then we're going to explore why this question has been raised in the first place. Does that sound good? So tonight, uh, we're in 2 Peter. If you want to turn there, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. So 2 Peter is way near the back of your New Testament. It's after 1 Peter. So if you find 1 Peter, you keep going. You hit James, you got to back the truck up. So 2 Peter, we're in chapter 1, in verses 16 to 21. And when Peter is saying we, he's talking about himself and the disciples. Okay. So for we, Peter writes, we're not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So now what we're going to do is we're going to circle back around and first we're going to answer the question, 
isn't Christianity just another fairy tale? So back in verse 16, Peter, speaking for him and his friends, writes, we were not making up clever stories when we were told about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read that, the assumption here is that people were saying that what they were doing or what they were teaching or what they were trying to, to tell other people was a lie, that they were making it up. The, the, essentially, these lives that they were living based on this teaching were hollow, that it was all just a fairy tale. And this part of the text specifically is coming right after Peter has been encouraging people that they need to live well in light of the fact that Jesus himself is going to be coming back. And they always thought, and they, the church has always believed that that is imminent, that it's soon. And he said that he, Peter, he's likely going to be killed soon. Jesus told them he was going to die for his faith. And now Peter is feeling it, that it's going to be soon. And so he's trying to tell them and he's trying to remind them that their behavior, it matters with their relationship to God. It's, it's key. And now because of, of these teachings, these teachings that echo the teachings of Jesus, people are accusing Peter of living a dream. They're saying there is no Jesus returning. And there's a number of reasons that they, why they might be saying that. They could be saying that because they just don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, that he didn't come in the first place. Why would he be able to come again? Why would he come again? Or they might be saying that, and here's a, here's a nice 99 cent theological term for you. They might have an over-realized eschatology, meaning that they believe the second coming has already happened and that they're now just living in the great beyond. Or the third reason is they could have spiritualized the second coming and said that Jesus isn't going to come in bodily form. He's just going to come spiritually. So for whatever reason, they believe that Peter and friends have bought into a lie and now that they're trying to propagate it. However, this has been the teaching. What Peter and friends have said, this has been the teaching down through the ages. So we still sing songs like, even so come, Lord Jesus. See, I, I, I have a lot of questions, but one question in particular that I have as I read a text like this is, what's in it for them? Like, what is in it for them to be accused of teaching a lie? Like, why would they do that? What, what benefit would it be to them to make up these clever stories? And the next question I have is, is what does Peter mean by the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's keep going. Halfway through 16, we saw with his majestic we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he and he's talking about Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, "This is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy." And we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, as you're reading that or, or hearing me say that, and if you're wondering what Peter's talking about, he's referring to what's called the transfiguration. Transfiguration. And you can read the story in Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke 9. I'm going to read a couple of verses from the Luke passage just so we're all on the same page as to what's happening here. So Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Just amazing. And suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, and if you're not familiar with Moses and Elijah, these are two heavyweights from the Old Testament. These guys are prophets, great, great leaders. 
also men who have been off the earth for hundreds and hundreds of years. All of a sudden, they appeared and began talking with Jesus. So the three guys are watching now. These three men have a conversation. Peter now says in verse 31, the most, uh, probably the biggest understatement in the entire Bible, they were glorious to see. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus, Jesus' exodus. And by that, they mean his death, resurrection, and ascension, his, his leaving the earth, his, his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. So I would love to be able to take this passage, this, these few verses, and camp out on here for the next few days, because there is a ton of stuff in here. It's just pregnant with meaning. There's all kinds of prophecy and symbolism uh, not only prophecy of stuff coming through, but, but foretelling, showing what will be happening as Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem. It's just incredible what's going on. But for us, it's, it'll suffice to know that what Peter is saying is that he saw this event with his own eyes. He's saying that not only did he see it with his own eyes, he's saying, guys, you can fact check me. I wasn't the only one there. There was multiple people there that saw this scene, this incredible scene with our own eyes. Why would Peter die for this? For, for this knowledge? That's a question we always want to be having in the back of our minds. If this is just a clever story that he's making up, why is this worth dying for? Another question is, is how, how did this impact them? Verse 19, because of that experience, and we really, really need to hear this, this, these few words, these four words, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention, close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. So it's because of what they saw and heard and smelled and, and touched and, and felt. They had greater trust in what they've been taught. You guys might not know this, but you have another, uh, you have a prophet in your midst here tonight. So before we got going, I asked Kelvin if uh, this chair would hold me, if it would hold my weight. And, and he said, yes, he proclaimed it even that this would hold my weight. And so I believe Calvin, he's a, he's a trustworthy guy most of the time. And just kidding, all the time. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, pardon me, I surprised myself there. And so he's a trustworthy guy, but I believe, I, I believe him. So I have knowledge that this chair will hold my weight. But how much more when I, oh, that was a close one. When I, <laughs> when I actually sit down and, and it holds me, right? Like this is, it's one thing for him to tell me it's going to hold me. It's a whole other thing for me to experience it myself. The apostles, Peter and pals, had been taught that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God come to earth. God is doing and had been doing, will be doing amazing things through him. They've been, they've been taught that, but now they've actually experienced it. They've been able to see Jesus come in power, seen it with their own eyes. How much more do you think they believe? Before they, they believed, now they really believe. So just like you'd expect from somebody who possesses 
knowledge of infinite value, Peter is now wanting to share this with anybody and everybody. Share this message before he dies. In other words, Peter's saying, we didn't create this story. We're just relaying God's story. He's saying prophets have pointed to what would happen, and now we've seen it happen. So listen to them for their words. The prophet's words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star shines in your hearts. Fairy tale or not, friends, those are some beautiful, beautiful words. But Chris, aren't those just words, right? Aren't they just words written by men with an agenda, with a, with a bias? Perhaps, of course, they would say something like that because it, it fulfills what they want. Peter, what say you? Verse 20, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. What Peter's getting at here is something called inspiration, that God inspired through his Holy Spirit, these writers to write what they wrote. So how do we know that we can trust that, though? In word, Sunday school, answer, anybody? Yeah, there we go. Gold star for Michael. Jesus, we can trust this because of Jesus. Jesus believed in the authority of scripture. As we read through the New Testament, we see Jesus, anytime he's confronted with anybody, the devil, false teachers, whomever else, Jesus always uses the scriptures to point people in the right direction. As Andy Stanley likes to say, anytime anybody predicts their, their death and resurrection and actually accomplishes it, accomplishes it, this is somebody that you really want to listen to. This is someone you really want to listen to. And there's many, many reasons to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But the most powerful one, the one Paul points to in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 15, is that, 1 Corinthians 15, is that uh, his resurrection is, is the key piece. There's many, many reasons for us to believe. Remember, this is this doubt series has a lot of intellectual components to it. Remember, we talked about, uh, we've talked about apologetics, and that's not saying sorry, but that's having that intellectual reasons to believe what we believe, right? That's, that's what apologetics is all about. So there's many intellectual reasons that we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and many of you have probably heard them before. There's something called the minimal facts. If you haven't heard of it, I encourage you to look it up. But it's, it encompasses things like Jesus was crucified. The tomb was found empty. There is many appearances. That's what Paul talks about in the Corinthians. The, uh, there's many appearances afterwards. And then there's this one that I want to camp out on a little bit because we've already been alluding to. But that's the live of Jesus's followers and their willingness to lose them for Jesus's sake. To me, this is the most compelling piece of evidence. I I really love this quote from Charles Coulson. If you've never heard of him, he was a politician. Uh, He was embroiled in uh, the 1970s uh, Watergate scandal. For those of you who don't know what Watergate was, this was a a political scandal that caught up many of the most powerful people, uh, some of the most powerful people in the Western world or, or the world, and also then President Richard Nixon, who was later impeached because of his role in this. Coulson himself went to jail and would later become a believer based a lot and uh, would grow in his faith. And a lot of it was because he believed the resurrection. And this is what he wrote in a book. He wrote, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. 
How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone, this is the the key part, everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison, and they would not have endured that if it weren't true. They would have known if it was true or not. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, those apostles, those early believers, they knew that what they were dealing with was reality. It was real life. It was real. And they were living it. So as I said, there's, there's many more facts that you could get into, but just because of time, we won't be getting into them regarding Jesus's uh, resurrection. But maybe you might be thinking, okay, Chris, my you-know-what meter is going off. How, how can you prove the Bible with the Bible? Isn't that, a, isn't that a circular argument to prove the Bible with the Bible? And I, and I really, really, I get that objection. But, but listen to this. First of all, what we're talking about, uh, some of the reasons that we believe in the resurrection and, and believe in the truths of Christianity can be shown extra biblically in either nature or in other resources such as Josephus. This also assumes that what we're talking about assumes that the Bible itself, particularly the New Testament, would not have been written if Jesus didn't rise from the grave because these guys would have just gone home. They wouldn't have wasted their time writing something about something that didn't happen and then die for it. And finally, the Bible wasn't written over the weekend, right? It was, it, it was written like over four, or sorry, about 1,500 years by like 40 different authors and all writing with the same storyline in mind. It, it pointed to a God who's there, who created everything, who loves his creation and has a beautiful future in mind for it. See, I believe in the authority of the Bible because I, I, I think Jesus affirmed it. I believe Jesus affirmed it and I've experienced God's spirit in my life and I've seen God's spirit working in other people's lives. See, God is the best explanation that I can think of for the world that I see around me. It's the best, he's the best explanation for objective morality. He's the best explanation for why things like suffering and evil can actually be redeemed. See, I believe that without the God that we meet in both the world around us and in our Bibles, life devolves into meaninglessness and hopelessness. See, I've, I've lived that life, and, and I thank God for bringing me through it. But it, it's not just me that, that believes this, is it? We, many people in this room, many people in, in this neighborhood, many people around us, countless millions of people around the world would affirm these same truths for these same reasons. They would testify to that. And that same testimony has passed down through the ages for millennia for these same reasons. And it all started with a God who spoke creation into motion and then spoke to his prophets revealing himself. And those prophets spoke on his behalf and what they said was corroborated in real life. It, it happened and people were there to experience. So the answer, my friends, is, is no. 
Christianity isn't just another fairy tale. This is for real. Experience in the biblical witness testify to its reality. See, if, if I've given you at all any impression, though, that the struggle with whether it's true or not isn't real, then, then I apologize, because I, I do understand that it is real. As I said, I felt it. I still have to take my mind captive sometimes with doubts as they come in, and I have to think through some of these things. It's, it's not like a, just a flip, a switch flips, and it's just steady as she goes. Sometimes it's understood that because we can't see, smell, taste, touch, hear, or feel God on command, that he's not there though. And I get that. Someone can tell us that God's there. They can say it with absolute certainty and conviction. Praise Jesus. He's there. But until we experience it, For ourselves, until we know it, then it does, it it seems like a fairy tale. So with the remaining time, I just want to explore this, that the question that's behind the question, and that's why do people think that Christianity is just another fairy tale? How do they come to that conclusion? I'm going to quickly cover two and then camp out on the third for a little bit. So the first uh, reason is, is maybe someone's tried to meet God and he didn't show up the way that they thought he would or in a way that they were told he would. They, maybe they were told he's there and they went looking with some idea of what he looks like in their mind. It's like the other day when Sarah, we're sitting on the couch and she asked me to, to go and get something from the cupboard. And so I went to go get it, and it's either because I had a a different picture of what it looked like in my mind, or because I'm a guy. I went to the cupboard, and I opened it up, and I started looking for it, and moved stuff around, and then I came back and sat down and said, nope, it's gone, we we must be out of it, or something like that. To which Sarah graciously responded by rolling her eyes, not on the outside, but on the inside. And she got up, and she went to the cupboard, and opened it up, and, and was back in like five seconds, with, with it in her hand. And I'm like, well, where was it, right? It, was in the it must be somewhere else, right? You, know, you guys know exactly where it was. It was exactly where she said it was going to be. So I, had, I went looking for something with a funny picture of it in my mind. I'm going with that one. See, something that's very real is when we, when we try faith, it doesn't do or and it doesn't do what we expect it to do, or it doesn't look like we want it to. We, we try and we try and we try and we expect God to, to heal or provide or whatever, and he doesn't. In a sense, we've put up this barrier by imposing on God what we think he should do. So we, we come to him and we have expectations for him, and so that when he doesn't perform, we just come to the conclusion that he's not there in the first place. And so what do we do? Give up. Yeah, complain. Often walk away. We think there's no power or redemption in the gospel because it didn't do what we needed it to do. So we we, we think it's probably just another fairy tale. Friends, sometimes things don't go the way we want, but it doesn't mean that God's not there. I think it simply means that we just need to reevaluate what we want. 
We need to understand who God is and engage with him on, on his terms, not make him the God of our understanding and expect him to engage with us on our terms. So next, it's the first reason. So next, maybe someone just doesn't want there to be a God. A professor of philosophy at New York University, Thomas Nagel, is quoted as saying, uh, I want atheism to be true and, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It's kind of a compliment. I th- like, thanks. <laughs> he, says, he goes on, he says, I don't want there to be a God. I, I don't want the universe to be like that. Maybe you've thought that before, or maybe you know somebody that that thinks that way. There's not much, if someone's like intentionally wanting to go in that direction, there's not much to do but encourage them to wrestle with, if they so want, with some of the things we've talked about tonight. I know I did, because I used to think that way, and I can promise you that it's worth it, that it did change my life. And I know many, many other people that it changed theirs as well. So that's the second one. Finally, and this one, this one is for, for the church. This one is for people who consider themselves followers of Jesus. And church, do you want to know why I think people often think that Christianity is a fairy tale? Do you want to know why people look at what we believe both inside of our communities and and on the outside and wonder whether or not it's true? It's because we often don't act like it is. We often don't act like it's true. Church, we really need to own this. And, and I'll speak for myself personally, I really need to own this because I will sit here and I'll verbally affirm th- the text that we've read tonight. I'll affirm that Jesus showed himself in power and glory on a hill, that Moses and Elijah were there in front of Peter and his friends, and they, that it changed their life. I'll affirm that Jesus came and lived a sinless life, that he died and rose again for me and for for us, for people to be able to experience eternal life, relationship with God, I'll affirm that. I'll affirm that because of that, I can have dwelling in me the Holy Spirit and through that power to do things that Jesus said would be even greater things than he did. I can affirm that. But do I always live it in power? So what do I mean by that? I'm going to get to that in a second because see, we, we want to take what we're talking about right here and we want to put it on a, on a bit of a, a foundation for which it can impact. You see, because all of us, every human being needs something to believe in. We all want something to cling to for meaning in life. Probably not, but has anyone heard of Greta Thunberg? Greta Thunberg, I think that's how it looks, but it's just pronounced Thunberg. If you haven't heard of her, she's a climate activist. She's the girl that's behind the, the school striking for climate change and, and stuff. And please 
don't be thinking about climate change or politics or anything like that. I'm not bringing her up because of that. I'm bringing her up because of a quote that she put out into the Twitter sphere uh, recently uh, about meaning. And so I wanted to read that. She wrote, she wrote, before I started school striking, I had no energy, no friends, and I didn't speak to anyone. I sat alone at home with an eating disorder. All of that is gone now since I have found a meaning in a world that sometimes seems shallow and meaningless to so many people. See, in, the, in this one message, Greta has summed up the crisis of today, and that's a crisis of meaning. We're desperate for this. So she's saying, my identity was a little girl alone in her room. And now my identity is a climate activist with one of the largest platforms on earth. See, when I read that, Peter's words in our, in our text, they loom large for me, don't they? When he writes, because of that experience, we are changed. Through Jesus, we are changed. Our lives have meaning. This is where we get our identity is through the power of Christ. See, people are desperate to find out why they're here, what the meaning of life is, so much so that they create it for themselves. And, and if that's you, I get it, because I, for the longest time, believed that I could and would create my own, my own meaning. But I don't think that we do get to just create our own meaning. I think only the creator gets to create meaning for life, not the creature for him or herself. It's something that's conveyed. But it's so easy for us to buy into what our culture is selling. So I don't, I don't blame anyone for thinking that's true, believer or not. See, there's another fairly unknown person. His name's C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you've never heard of him, he's the, the author of many things, Chronicles of Narnia, one of them. And his friends called him Jack, by the way. Um, that's important for what I'm going to be saying in a few minutes. But... He once struggled to believe in the fairy tale of Christianity. He described himself as the reluctant, most reluctant convert in all the world once when he came to faith because he struggled. He didn't want to believe in Christianity. And he had a friend, uh, one J.R.R. Tolkien of uh, Lord of the Rings fame, and they spent many, many hours together discussing what reality actually looked like. Tolkien was a believer long before him, and he was trying to help his friend Jack. And so here's an excerpt from a dramatized conversation based on their communication. So it's J.R.R. Tolkien, but he's not Jack. Remember that, okay? Jack is Lewis. And he starts off. He says, you can't seriously believe in fairy tales. Why not? I can. In fact, I do. But this is preposterous. How can you seriously believe a lie? Oh, Jack, myths are not lies. In fact, they are the very opposite of a lie. Myths convey the essential truths, the primary reality of life itself. Go on. Well, you see, we have been duped into using the word myth as being synonymous with a lie because we have been duped into accepting the first real lie of materialism. And what is that? That is the hideous claim that there is no supernatural order to the universe. The materialists have imprisoned us in a world of mere matter of physical facts, divorced and devoid of metaphysical truth. 
Well, I say that they are lying. I say that they are the ones who have come up with a false myth. Their world doesn't exist. It's merely a figment of their imagination. The problem, though, is that they have convinced us that it is true. They have made us believe that this is all there is. Three dimensions, five senses, four walls. Isn't it? Most emphatically not, Jack, the walls of materialism are the four walls of a prison and the materialists are our jailers. It's not a book, it's a dramatization. It's a little like little movie thing. Friends, the world we live in is an enchanted world. And it's an enchanted world because God himself is the ultimate reality. And because of this deep and ancient truth, those who believe in him and follow him should live lives entirely for him. And this most often means living lives lived differently from those around them. Recently, there was a story in the news that surrounded the shooting of an innocent black man. And I'm going to give you just a quick synopsis just so you know where we're at. Uh, On September 6, 2018, off-duty Dallas Police Department patrol officer Amber Geiger entered the Dallas, Texas apartment of Botham John and shot and killed him. In, on October 1st, 2019, so just like a week and a half ago, Geiger was f- found guilty of murder. The next day, so October 2nd, she received a sentence of 10 years in prison. And they had a video camera in the, inside the proceedings. And uh, his brother, the, the man that was shot, his brother got to go up and testify or, or speak at the sentencing hearing as a witness impact statement. His name is Brandt. And he's, in the video, is addressing the woman who killed his brother. That, my friends, is just one example. One example of what living in the power of Jesus, in the grace of Jesus, can do. And instances of radical grace and forgiveness like that should be normative. normal for us. See, I don't know about you, but when people tell the tale of my faith journey, I, I want it to be of the genuine variety, not the, not the fairy tale variety. I, I don't want to just insert myself into the story of Jesus like I, I, I did with Jaws. I want, I want God to be my ultimate reality all the time. I want to fearlessly put myself out there for the sake of the gospel like Brent, Jean did in the video we just watched. Francis Chan, a pastor down in the States, he writes, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And what matters? What does keep Peter keep pointing to? It's the, it's the power of, of Jesus, he's pointing to the hope that Jesus gives to his church, who then is tasked with giving it to the world. 
Remember what he said. He says, because of that experience, and if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you could say, because of my experience, because of our experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. And those prophets, they were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So as, as we close up here tonight, I, I just I want to confess my own lack of faith. And I, I want to invite anybody else who feels the same way to ask God's forgiveness for living even some of the time as though his power doesn't course through us, as though this is just another fairy tale. And if you're here today and you aren't, you don't even consider yourself a believer, I want to invite you to take a chance and to taste and see that the Lord is good, to turn away from the old life, turn towards the new, turn towards God and see what meaning in this life is all about. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you and we are so grateful that this life is an enchanted life, that it is beyond just these five senses, three dimensions, four walls, that because of you, there are things that we can't even imagine. There's beauty and goodness and truth, and those are real things, things that we can not only engage with, but can empower us as your spirit works in our lives. And, and Father, I, I want to speak for myself and I, I want to ask for your forgiveness that I don't live like this is true all the time. That I fall victim to the world around me, that I fall victim to my own sinfulness, my own rebelliousness. And Father, I, I want to follow you, not out of a, a sense of just rote duty, but out of a sense of love but I need a supernatural love to do that, God, and I need you to do that in my heart. And for anybody else who feels the same way, Lord, we pray that you will fill us with that love and that through that we can feel and experience our lives, our lives transformed, but then more importantly, be able to worship you as you deserve to be worshiped and be able to show people who you are and introduce them to you and help them know you as we come to know you. Father, it's just, uh, it's so good to know that you're there, that you're here with us. Even if we can't see you or taste you or touch you or smell you, we know you're there. We know you're here. Help us live like you are. We pray in your name. Amen.